go to Mum's, kill Phil, sorry, grab Liz, go to the Winchester, have a nice cold pint, and wait for all this to blow over. How's that for a slice of fried gold? Yeah, boy! You're moving soon, very soon, and I have my my tip for when you move. Okay, I call I'm listening. It, I call it the oasis of denial. You have to pick one spot. I usually recommend either the living room or the bedroom, and you unpack everything so that when you're sitting and looking in one direction, you see no mess. To your left, to your right, behind you, it may be absolute bedlam, but you need one spot that when you're sitting or laying down and looking forward, that everything looks okay. Like hang the paintings, okay. plug in the cable, like yeah. plug in the Wi-Fi, so that you've got one spot in the whole mess that you can go to and it, everything looks okay. Greetings and salutations. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada, and you're listening to a matinee cast presentation of the Winchester Chronicles. This is dispatch number 10. Our mission is this. COVID-19 is affecting everybody's lives, and obviously that includes being able to go to the movies. That means our usual discussions of cinematic passion and perspective need to shift. However, it doesn't mean the overall film discussion needs to stop. So while we wait for the whole thing to blow over, we virtually sit here in our virtual Winchester pub and turn our attention to the best films of the decade gone by instead of the new releases we usually cover. It is amazing to me during a time where we're all keeping social distance and staying tucked away that I am managing to catch up with people I haven't seen or talked to in a while, years in some cases. But that's what's happening. My gaze has been widened beyond the people whose physical orbits overlap mine, and it's found me reaching out to people I haven't caught up with in a piece, like today's guest. He's one of the smartest film lovers I know, and someone I haven't seen for a while, even though we live in the same city. But here we are, and he's even making time for me to podcast during a very busy life event. He's a man who at one time was a, a critic about film. He's a programmer at Film Fest, and I'm really excited to have him back. Amir Sultani is here. How are you, man? Good, Ryan. I'm very glad to be back. Um, I was trying, actually, this morning, trying to think when the last time, uh, and I think the only time was that I was on your podcast, and I couldn't... Mm, think of it uh i remember distinctly sitting in the uh, reading room of your apartment and recording it but i didn't remember what it was about and i had to search my own name on your website and we talked about cleo from five to seven last I, time yeah I, was- I remember that and, and it was uh I, like i that was i think my introduction to agnes varda like i was i was really happy that you brought that to the table and and kind of sent me down that journey because i've i've fallen in love with their films ever since then yeah i think it was the first um i I actually i don't think i know it was the first varda for me too the first time i watched it Oh wow! and um yeah i'm glad yeah you started there yeah um what a brilliant filmmaker what a great loss incredibly incredible loss like i'm i'm still i'm still working my way through her work um i've been lucky enough that my brother has set me up with the criterion uh channel the 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 sites that you can stream and i've been like working through her films slowly but surely while i've while i've been off work so you know mixed blessing on our 10th dispatch of the winchester chronicle we'll be discussing certified copy we'll be turning the record over to play the other side but first we begin with creature comforts
Creature comforts in case you're new here is just what we've been distracting ourselves with while we're all locked down and we can't go out and watch new stuff. Um, Amir, why don't you get us started, man? What's something that, uh, I, uh, again, you're <laughs> you're much busier than I am these days, but what is something that you've been uh, keeping yourself busy with? Yeah, you know what? I was actually supposed to be even busier because I was going to get married and my wedding got cancelled. So uh, I have a bit of extra time on my hands now. It was supposed to be in eight days, which I can't believe it. It's been cancelled for so many months now that I'm just like, uh, I'm, I'm in such a different mindset than I was when my fiance and I were, were planning the wedding. Uh, but yeah, I'm moving instead. So um, <laughs> it's been it, it's been hectic. Outside of that, uh, Criterion Channel is actually a good thing to talk about because, man, like what a membership of all the memberships and accounts and stuff I've ever had anywhere. The one I've met, made the most use of by far is Criterion Channel. Like it's unbelievable how much time you can spend on that. And it just seems like an unlimited resource, right? I keep getting so impressed with how diverse their collection is because it's not just straight up criterion films like th that have hard copies they've got all kinds of things on there the other day i was watching but i'm a cheerleader with uh natasha leone and um oh that's on my list too actually yeah it's, it's crazy because at the time i had no interest in it you know it just, just seemed to me to be another teen movie you know like another one of these kind of like slapsticky american pie uh type of films but it's actually far more subversive than I thought it was going to be. 1999, it's directed by Jamie Babbitt, and it's it's held up so damn well that it's incredible to see it as part of Criterion Channel. So you, uh, I assume you watch it because it's on the expiring list, right? Because um, I've seen it there. I put it on my list to watch before the end of the month. And that thing, that list of expiring films every month has become basically my film diet. Like they curated so well yeah and, it's, um i just like 50 60 percent of the films i watch every month are just the stuff that's expiring from the channel yeah it's it's a like i mean that that to me is a really good way to make heads or tails out of your list like you know like you sign up to any platform whether it's netflix or disney plus or criterion and you add a whole bunch of films to your queue and you know stuff can just linger there for years Criterion has a, a whole subsection of what's leaving at the end of the month, and it, that can really help steer you towards, you know, something that you may have been meaning to watch for a long time, but like, okay, it's now, now is the time to do it. Um, I really wish some of the other platforms did keep that. What, uh, what from Criterion have you watched recently? Ooh, everything. Uh, <laughs> lots of films. So I, I, I started the year trying. This isn't really Criterion related, but before uh, before I got into Criterion more seriously after the lockdown started, I had this project to see all the films that won the Best Picture for the Oscars. So I oh, did yeah. that first, and then it kind of became. Um, I mean, the timing sort of lined up with when the lockdown started, and that personal project finished. So. After that, basically, it was Criterion Channel for a really long time. I watched their um, the entire Criterion um, Columbia Noir series, which was a lot of fun because I love noir films. And that was like 26 films, and I hadn't seen, I think, 18 or so of them before. Uh, but I watched the whole thing. Uh, they're all really good. 
Well, no, they're not all really good, <laughs> it's, really good, it's really good to see them all in one place. I think most of them have actually already expired from the channel, but they uh, did so once last year as well, and then re they recycled it with a couple of new films at the beginning of this year. Uh, so they'll probably come back at some point. Um, my favorite film of all time is uh, Nick Ray's In a Lonely Place, and that was one of those 26 films. Uh, Fritz Lang's The Big Heat was there. Uh, lots of good stuff. Oh, man. Um, it was probably the best thing I've seen, um, like that collection of films. But That's really, so I've been cool. all over the place. Like I said, like all the expiring stuff has been keeping me busy. It's a good way to do it. One of the things I've been doing to keep me busy the last uh, week or so is there's a podcast series called origins um that is james andrew miller is the is the uh host and okay grand poobah behind origins and his newest season of this he's done all kinds of of series in the past um but the one he's got going on right now is dedicated to kind of an oral history 20 years later of almost famous um, you know, anybody, mm -hmm. anybody who listens to this show or has been around my site probably knows that's my yeah. favorite movie ever, ever. So listening to mo like just about everybody involved with that movie, talk about it over the course of six episodes, um, has been a fun way to spend the week. Now, um, I got, you know, I, I gotta admit the, the one thing that I'm kind of in a weird place with this movie about is, as I get older and as time moves on and as the world changes, I really have a hard time squaring myself to the fact that it's a romantic look back at a time where rock was really shitty towards women towards, especially towards teenage girls. And that's like that. That's something that I'm really kind of grappling with so far. I'm, I'm like just beginning the last episode so far, the, the the series hasn't really touched it, um, which to me is a little disappointing because I do think that that's a very valid question for anybody who's talking to Cameron Crowe or, or anyone involved with that project these days is, you know, yeah, it's a love letter to rock and roll and it's viewed through the lens of somebody who loves music. You know, we can say all we want about how flawed the musicians are, but to love the creation of these flawed people is something that I think is still noble. Um, but that's, that's one thing that hasn't come up yet. I'm, I'm hoping it does. Like I'll, by the time this episode goes up, I'll have listened to that final podcast episode. And that's one where they're talking about like retrospective, like in terms of the film's place in history and their experiences and Cameron Crowe's uh, filmography. I'm hoping that that comes up, but it may not because it's kind of a tough question to put to these people. It's, it's been a fun way to spend my, my walks this week is listening to this show. Yeah. I'm um, I'd probably need to rewatch the film before I listen to that because I, it's been quite a while. I don't think I've seen it in, you know, a decade or so. And I'll be honest, I mean, I, I like the film just fine, but I didn't grow up in North America. So um, the, the music is very familiar to me because I like the music, but the general vibe of, you know, what the film is trying to do is not, it sort of doesn't really correlate with my teenage experience and youth experience. So I, uh, at the time there was that divide, but I think now having lived, I might've actually never seen it since I moved to Canada, but oh, wow. I think this, 
I'm, I'm due for rewatch. I mean, it's, it's crazy because like with everything else, like it is also a film that's before my time, like the bands that they're talking about within the course of the film. I mean, now I listen to pretty much everything that comes up in the film, but when, when I was a teenager, this wasn't my teenage music. So, I mean, and that's the, that's the thing I, I like about it is it's nostalgic for another time, but not nostalgic in the way that things were better. It's just nostalgic for a kind of celebration and a movement. Um, because I do find that nostalgia of things were better is really, really a dangerous thing. That's yeah. A- that's why I use the word vibe. Cause I think yeah. that's the only thing that like, it's nostalgia for a vibe, not necessarily the time or the era itself. Right? Yeah. I think w- one thing I'd be interested in talking to you about after you do see it is that I still do cling to regardless of, how feminist it may or may not be anymore is that I really find that it's a great marriage of art and criticism because it's like the, the central character is a critic, right? And there is this, this, this wonderful blurry line that every critic kind of keeps wrapped around themselves because in one part, they're fans in another part, they're curators and gatekeepers. And you have this, relationship with both the art and the artists and i feel like this film really does celebrate that in a way that not a lot of films do while we're on the topic of things we're doing in lockdown um i'm midway through this book um by george mombiot uh called uh, manifesto for a new world order and okay. i highly recommend that to everybody because at a time where it just feels like something really needs to change and this world as a whole like politically and socially um and you know anthropologically it just seems unsustainable the way it is it's nice to read a book that sort of just tells you hey i know we have all these structures um in the world that we've come we've become used to but um how about we re-envision the whole thing from scratch and see what can be changed? And um, I really like Monbiot's work um, in, you know, when I read it on The Guardian and whatnot here and there, the essays and news articles and stuff that he writes, it's, uh, to be honest, the first time I'm reading any of his books, he's written a few. Uh, but yeah, this one, uh, basically the idea is like, let's transform the world into a better place where it everybody can have a better life as opposed Mm. to just a few. And uh, he starts with, by prefacing the whole book with, look, a lot of what I'm saying to you is going to sound crazy, but a lot of the things that we're doing now would have sounded crazy 40 years ago. So bear with me. And um, you kind of get into the groove of the book as you go. Like I said, I haven't finished it yet, but so far I'm really into it. It's funny because it's it's a book that's now like, almost 15 years old. And yet I imagine that a lot of what he's putting forward is still quite relevant. Yeah. Because I mean, when you talk about, um, uh, I don't know, climate change, when you talk about a lot of issues with, uh, the capitalist structure of the world we live in, um, we haven't really made a whole lot of progress in the past 15, 16 years since he wrote the book. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's obviously been technological advances, but the, essential structures of the world we live in are more or less the same as they were in 04 or 05 right that's that's a little sad Uh, but yeah it's very sad yeah um and unless you know somebody comes up with 
a manifesto for a new world order, then it's it's going to look the same in 2030 and 40, and that's not a good thing. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I I always look for good nonfiction, and um, sometimes it can be really hard to get direction there because, you know, it's sort of the similar thing of the 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 podcast about almost famous is if somebody knows nothing and they may find it really interesting if somebody has read a lot about almost famous they may get nothing from it um but uh, this certainly looks really fascinating and uh, as i said like i'm, I'm always looking for I, I tend to listen to nonfiction as audiobooks because it's kind of like listening to podcasts and it, it makes for a nice balance between like fiction and nonfiction and, and kind of how and when I consume them. So that's a, that's a great recommendation, man. Thanks for that. No, I agree with you. I mean, I mean, no, no problem. I, I, yeah, I mean this one I'm reading in paperback, but, um, I, I do agree with you actually. I think, I don't think I've ever listened to a fiction book in full on audiobook Cause I keep getting distracted. Like usually I listen when I'm driving to work and if you're on the road, you're always getting distracted by something, and that's not how I enjoy fiction. But no. nonfiction, like you said, it's like a podcast, so like I can rewind back and not feel like I'm losing any artistry in the work. Yeah, um, I'm probably doing nonfiction a disservice, but you know what I mean, right? It's so. it's like talk radio. It's it's you know it's it's like listening to a yeah, really good go. really good conversation on on NPR or something like that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, well, the the other thing that I've been doing since the last episode is um, there was a nice little flurry of, of new releases that hit video on demand um, that I caught up with, including one that's kind of weaseled its way up towards my fav- one of my favorites of the year. Did you get a chance to sit down with Kelly Reichard's first cow? I did, yeah, very recently, actually. It was supposed to be the last film I uh, watched um, in theaters. And then on the day where I was supposed to go, it was the first day where Tiff Bell Lightbox shut down. So (laughs) I ended up not going and only watched it uh, at home about a week or so ago. Yeah. This movie, um, I don't know what I really thought. Very good. It's incredible. I don't know what I thought it was going to be about. Um, but it's, it's fan bloody tastic. It's, it's a film that's set in the 19th century in, um, in the States in the, on the West coast. Um, it's back before Oregon was even a state. Oregon is only a territory at the time. And these two men from totally different backgrounds, they find their paths crossing and they both have a passion for food. Like one of them is the cook for a camp of trappers. Um, the other one is just basically on the road and they find themselves near this, basically this nobleman who happens to have the only cow in the territory and they start stealing the cow's milk to help them make these biscuits that they then start selling and basically like make themselves a small little profit. It's, you know, there's, there's an article that dropped, um, when it hit, first hit on demand about how it's a film about an, a more ideal masculinity. Um, it, it's certainly a film that has our relationship with the environment in mind. Um, it's a film that actually has some real stakes. Like when, you know, when, when, when this little kind of caper that they're on in terms of stealing this cream, when, when, word kind of slowly seems to be trickling out about what's going on you actually find yourself a really invested in oh shit are they going to get caught and what's going to happen and are they going to get to keep their money 
this like it's gorgeous this movie i can't believe how good this movie is i really fell for it too and uh, i first of all i really want to try oily cake now which is yeah. what a fun name for the thing they make, <laughs> right oily cake uh and it just looks so delicious but uh, yeah i'm i'm a big fan of kelly reichardt especially the last two certain women in this is how she can take these stories that are seemingly super small about like a very small specific set of people and enrich them with so much history and gravitas that you kind of feel like the film is about so much more by the end when you walk away from the film. Oh yeah. You've seen so much. This is really a film about American history without actually being a film about American history. When you talk about the film, like, like you just did now, you know, it does actually make you think, wow, or this is like at whatever specific point in Oregon's history, and this is what it was like, and this is how different races and people interacted, and how hunters went around, and blah, blah, blah. While you're watching the film, it's never wearing you down with like self indulgent importance no, or no. anything like that, right? Yeah, but when, once you walk away, you're like, wow, that movie was about so many more things than i thought it was about while i was watching it which is exactly what i thought of certain women too um which yeah it was my favorite film of its own year she's very economical in how she tells her stories you know like she it's it's never her stories are never preachy they're never heavy-handed they're actually rather uh subdued um even i mean certain women it, you know, takes place in Montana and it just seems like every person that's on, that's in this community is just dwarfed by the actual natural landscape that they're around. Like it, it's, it's very, very isolated. If I remember correct, the opening is even just the shadow of this huge mountain. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, she, she has an amazing relationship with the planet. Like every single one of her stories is, you know is very naturally set and there's a you know there's a, there's a symbiosis between the people of her story and the land that they're that they're inhabiting um and yet it just it's if anything her films are almost in danger of being too subtle like she's never heavy-handed about the messages that she wants to get across and you know she's very quickly become a filmmaker who whenever she has a new film i go um, and, and yeah, first cow, I mean, I think when I saw the trailer for it and I might embed a copy of the trailer, a, a link to the trailer in the show notes, I think I sort of giggled. Cause I, I thought I was like, what are we, it's a film about a cow. What the hell, what are we doing here? But you're right. It's, it's, it's a very quirky title about a much more subtle and beautiful story. Um, yeah. And, and that, that economy of storytelling and and the subtlety is totally in this film too like i agree with you that trailer now in retrospect having seen the film is kind of it doesn't really tell you what the film is about but like how do you make a film ostensibly about a cow but really about inequalities in american society that you know where they're on the oregon trail and they're still there in 2020 everywhere right yeah uh that seems like such a big weight to to lift yeah. and yet she does it by making a small movie about two guys baking and, and a cow. So, yeah. I, and brilliant filmmaker. I'll have, you know, I, I have really been trying to, uh, 
coax uh, Lindsay, my wife, into baking us some oily cakes, but right now she's having none of it. Uh, I might have to try my hand at it. Now, I'm not the baker in the house, so we'll see how this goes. But you're right. I, I do want some of those treats for myself. Uh, have you watched a lot of 2020 films? Or uh, I've, like, are I mean, there a lot of 2020? Because I feel like... There are. It's 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 crazy. Like I could I could certainly right now hand in a very respectable top five and a semi respectable top ten. Um, I mean, the, you know, there's everything from like everybody's been talking about the Five Bloods on Netflix um, onward from Pixar, which was the last full matinee cast we did, was another film that came with more than I thought it would. Um, the Assistant is is an is a really low boil but incredible film um about um a production assistant and like a uh, in in the shadow of a Harvey Weinstein type person um Elizabeth Moss has had an incredible year because she had both the invisible man and Shirley both came out this year um even just something that seems silly but is actually probably one of the best films for the moment um palm springs on hulu down in the states which is basically kind of a a weird nihilistic twist on groundhog day there's been stuff it's it's that's the thing that's been killing me about the theaters really wanting to ramp back up and all this talk about how Warner Brothers is going to may or may not lead the charge with their blockbuster that I don't even want to name anymore is that it, it totally throws shade on all of these smaller films that took advantage of January, February and March or decided to go straight to VOD that are really, really good. I think uh, the problem might be on my end a little bit because I sort of associate just like mentally associate watching movies at home with older stuff and going to the movies with newer stuff, even though I go to retrospectives all the time and I also watch new things at home all the time. But it sort of mentally how it worked itself out for me was that once I knew I was stuck at home and theaters were closed, I was just like, all right, time to catch up on all this old <laughs> stuff I've want, been wanting to see. So I haven't seen a lot of 2020s. I'm looking at my list now. I can do a very respectable top five, but even then three of them are leftovers from last year's TIFF that were supposed to open in 2020. God knows if they will. Yeah. But past that top five, I would, yeah. Well, I it's, would have a heart. No, it's it's out there, but I, I mean, listen, I'm still hoping that I get a chance to see First Cow in a theater at some point. Um, my the film that's sitting in my top spot right now, which I'm not going to mention because I'm actually hoping to do a full episode about it before the year is out. If not, bring it up on the top five episode. Is another film which is very very small and very subtle, but I wish I could have seen it in a theater. The Assistant, I did see in a theater, and I was glad about it because. It's so low simmering that if I was watching it at home, I might have tuned out. Um, so it's it, it, yeah, you're like I know where you're coming from. It's a weird, it, it, it's 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 kind of weird to get some direction and to get into that mindset of I'm watching from home instead of watching in a theater. But stuff's been there, and you know it's kind of just it's on us to find it. I think. Yeah, I have to get on the assistant. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, the only film that beats First Cow for me. Um, again, it's unreleased. I don't know when it's going to come out because I saw it at TIFF last year, but it's uh, Pietro Marcello's Martin Eden. I don't know if you saw it. I didn't see festival. it, but I'll have to, I'll have to uh, look Italian it. film. I'll... Oh, you absolutely do. Great okay. film. 
Very I nice. won't say anything more about it. But Sweet. Yeah. All right. Time, time to go looking for it. Well, there we go. That's our creature comforts for this dispatch. And it's time for the feature. The feature for dispatch number 10 is certified copy coming right up after this. Certified Copy was released in 2010. It was directed and written by Abbas Kurastami. It stars Juliette Binoche and William Chamel. Certified Copy is a simple story. We are introduced to an author named James Miller, that's Chamel, at a reading and signing of his latest book, Certified Copy, in Italy. At the event, one of the guests, played by Juliette Binoche, gives her number to the author's translator in the hopes he will get in touch while he's in town. He does, and they begin spending a pleasant afternoon together until a cafe owner mistakes James for the woman's husband. It's at this moment that their interactions shift, and they begin to play the part of husband and wife, speaking, acting, and relating in a very different manner towards one another. Midway through certified copy, James is given some marital advice. An older gentleman tells him that truly, all a wife really wants in life is for her husband to walk by her side and gently put his hand on her shoulder. In a word, marriage is about affirmation. So, pop quiz, hotshot. What about this film do you find affirming? I mean, how do you even approach a Kiara Stami film, really? Uh, you answer that question for me and I'll answer yours. Well, I'll well, tell you what, I'll, I'll trade you. You can answer how does one approach a Kiara Stami film and I'll, I'll answer my own pop quiz, hotshot. I think what I found affirming about this film uh, is two things. I found affirming, it's apropos that we're talking about this right after talking about the work of Kelly Reichardt, because I think in some ways the, the two storytellers have a commonality. Um, one of the things that I find affirming about this film is its simplicity. It, it's, it's an elegant film. It's really, really stunning time after time after time. Um, you know, there, there's an incredible shot that I always come back to of the them sitting in the car driving down the street in Tuscany and the townscape is kind of scrolling by on the windshield. And it's, first of all, it's a daring choice because it obscures both of their faces quite often. And at the same time, it's just so simple. You know, it's, it's, it's just the kind of thing that all you got to do is just not block the light coming off the windshield and this is what you're going to get. Like, if you didn't know better, you'd almost think it was a mistake. And yet to see that kind of visual, you know, like, like just unfurling like a, like a roll of film, basically, um, while they're talking over just about their day, it's so beautiful. And it's, this, it's the simplest shot. You know, it's the camera is locked on the hood and they just talk while the, while the town scrolls by. That's, so that's the one thing I find affirming about this. The other thing I find for, uh, affirming interwoven into much of this story, um, you know, once we kind of get past the fact that they seem to begin as strangers and then play this role, is that this is a story about the theme of forgiveness. You know, um, you are sometime in the next, sometime in the near future going to get married. I've been married for 10 years now. And the, you know, uh, marriage is such a, 
complicated and weird organism that nobody ever fully prepares you for. But the one thing that seems to be, you know, the key that they talk about is approaching life with grace for one other person. Um, you know, like knowing when something really is hurtful, knowing when something is just kind of minorly annoying and finding it in yourself to give that grace to somebody else. Um, those two things, the simplicity of the storytelling, the simplicity of, you know, an act of putting your hand on somebody's shoulder, that is those two ideas and, and, and the grace that it all comes with. Those two ideas are what I find most affirming about this film. So how does one approach uh, the work of Kirostami? It's actually a good se segue from what uh, your first affirming point about the film was because probably the best way to approach his films is to start out trying to look for the complexity beyond that simplicity. Because when you look at Kiarostami's filmography, I mean, all his films are, um, are ostensibly very simple on the surface, right? Um, I mean, he's been making films since the 70s, but the film that really brought him to international attention was Where is the Friend's Home? Which, if you were to tell somebody what that film is about, you could summarize the whole thing in one sentence. You know, there's two two um, young boys who are classmates, and one of them uh, takes the other's homework home by mistake for the night, and the other one needs to do their homework. So he goes trying to look for his home to give him his notebook. And that's what the entire movie is about. It's one boy looking around the village trying to find the home of his classmate. It's funny that we already talked about Kelly Reichardt because it's the same thing. You take these one little morsel of a story somewhere in the corner of some village in Iran and you start from there and expand into something much more meaningful about friendship and about rural life in Iran and about um, camaraderie and all that stuff. And um, you make a timeless film out of that. Um, Kiarostami is a master of that kind of simplicity. In a couple of his biggest films, namely Close Up, um, you can't really describe Close Up as a simple film, although even then, from scene to scene, the film is, uh, sorry, the scenes are individually very simple on the surface, uh, but the overall of where what it adds up to is, is, um, is sort of a maze and very complex. Um, and that's what's always attracted me and I think general audiences to his films. Certified copy is no exception. I will say that one thing I really appreciated about Certified Copy, which isn't so much to do with the film as it is to, with its reception, uh, is that there seemed to be a switch when that film came out, uh, when people heard that he was my favorite filmmaker in, in how they reacted to, to that claim. Because, and I don't know if I'm conveying myself properly, but basically up to that point, if I ever told somebody he's my favorite filmmaker, the approach would be like, oh, of course the Iranian guy's favorite filmmaker is Kiara Sami. <laughs> Whereas, and, and, and you've got to bear in mind, like up to that point, uh, you know, his most acclaimed film, again, close up had come out. He'd won a Palm d'Or at Cannes for Taste of Cherry. And, you know, he was, he'd had a decades long career by then. Uh, but there were a few years where he was experimenting mostly between 10 coming out in 2002 and 2010 when this one came out. So there was quite a few quiet years. Um, and it always seemed like, um, I mean, not to critics specifically, but to the larger cinephile community, 
that he was still kind of an Iranian filmmaker and in that bubble. Uh, once Certified Copy came out, the reaction to Kiarostami changed by my anecdotal evidence, and I found a lot more people came on board. And so that's one thing I really appreciated about Certified Copy at the time. Uh, but it's one of those films that every time I rewatch it, I mean, I kind of went into my brother's room today with goosebumps, and I was just like, Man, do you like? Have you watched this recently? And he said, "Yeah." And like, isn't it just such a great movie? Like every time I watch it, I find so many new things in it that I didn't think was there the last time. Let's start there. Anybody watching this film could interpret their relationship in their own way, and for a film that's so simple, that's basically a couple of long conversations. That's that's what it comes down to. Uh, the fact that you walk away from that film from with a potentially completely different take than the person you would watch the film with is is crazy to me. That is one of the master strokes of this masterpiece is this idea that two people start talking and after one act of, of speaking, they start to relate as a married couple quite convincingly. And it leaves... Uh, you know, audiences wondering, were they, you know, a married couple that were cold to each other in that first act? Or do they spend two acts basically playing make-believe? And there's no real definitive proof of either theory. You know, like either one of those things are entirely possible. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. But th 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 there's... There's even more options than that. I mean, if you watch the interviews with Kiarostami about the film, he kind of playfully suggests that both of those things can coexist at once. And the first part of the film um, could be happening 15 years prior to the second part of the film. And you kind of oh, see man. them coming together and getting to know each other. And then 15 years later, that's what's happened to their marriage. Of course, Kiarostami, first of all, was so playful and such a great interviewee and so um, smart and clever in the way he answered questions you could never tell if he was telling you the truth or not uh, and I say that as a positive right it, yeah. it, he was just like an incredible master uh, at at the art of you know being an artist on top of the artistry itself uh, so for for that reason alone you can't depend on his answer as a clue uh, but also I mean in the film there are clues you know Juliette Binoche's character already has a son at the beginning of the film so it can't be their son if it's 15 years you know earlier than the second part of the film uh, but it is a plausible ish kind of take on the film I watched um, the film for the second or third time years ago with somebody who's not really a film person, but wanted to see this film. And after the after we finished the film, he said, uh, you know what, you guys who read and write about films, you overthink things. I think this was a movie about dementia. Huh. And, that, wow. oh, and that, oh, yeah, and that always stuck with me because, uh, I mean, obviously that would be a very surface level reading of the film um, that, you know, it's not really the satisfying cinematic answer you're looking for of, okay, here we have this genius master of filmmaking. Uh, he couldn't possibly just be making a superficial film about dementia. But, and I hadn't seen the film after that last time when I had that conversation with my friend today, when I was watching it with that comment in mind, um, you know, you get to the final scene of the film 
and that blank stare that William Schimmel gives gives to the camera. And I was like, wow, that does actually seem completely plausible that this yeah. is someone. There are multiple clues to that in the film where Juliette Binoche says, uh, even outright says things like, oh, I wish you would remember that. Can you try to remember that, please? If that's your take on the film, superficially at least, they're telling you there are things he doesn't remember and she's trying to make him remember and the behavior kind of checks out, right? Um, uh, I haven't read anybody write about that, probably because that's not what it is. But the (laughs) point I'm trying to make is you could walk away from that film thinking anything. Like he basically leaves it to you to, to, you know, take from the film what you will and not in a frustrating oh, I'm just giving the film an open-ending kind of way, you know? I mean, you know, in in a way, I feel like this was kind of a a, a much-needed film for me to rewatch. Um, I mean, for starters, this was easily the first time I came back to this movie in, I'd say, eight years. I, I have not seen this movie in a very, very long time. And I, I have no excuse for that because this movie is incredible. Um, I mean, watching it last night, I was really, really just struck by how unbelievably gorgeous and economical and and just wonderful of a film it is it's a film that i really wanted for the moment because at a time where we're all you know kind of sheltering in place like we're you know a lot of places we're able to move around quite a bit but it's usually just kind of get from a to b do what you need to do and go back home it's we're not really in a in a spot in the world to linger um this is a movie that is very much about people watching you know it's it's about the couple looking at other people and and the states that they are in their lives it's about other people observing them you know the the woman who runs the cafe who sets the dominoes in motion of you know i can tell that your husband is a good man um she infers that just by watching them and watching them talk it's a ballad for the people who like to sit on the streetcar and watch a couple talk to one another or sit in the cafe and you know watch how people come in and out and and interact with the help there's a poetry in that that you don't often see uh captured in film you know plot in in most major motion pictures has to be a little bit more lively than what this film is is laying laying down but this film is really just trying to say hey you know if you take the time to look around at the people who surround you in these spaces whether it's your space or if you're traveling to a space you've never been there are stories all around you that you know if if nothing else you can hang them on these people even if you're not correct and uh Kiarasami was really a master of this i mean trying to get you to see new dimensions of trait character traits and people that films usually don't deal with um he uh, sometimes he would force you to do that by lingering his camera too long on on a person or or a, or a, a specific frame um and he's great at doing that kind of thing have you uh, seen his um last film 24 frames that was released after he passed away i have not okay so if if you want a good example of what he can do by um doing exactly what you were talking about so holding his frame onto um a site 
where you don't think a story can be found, but so much can be found. Um, that 24 frames is really the film for you. It's kind of like an art installation. It actually is 24 long frames. Oh, cool. uh, each of them was, is four. Yeah, it's four minutes and some seconds uh, each. So it adds up to a feature length film. Um, and there are no characters uh, except for one or maybe two of these frames. The rest are either animals or just nature. Um, but it's so playful and so interesting in the way that it basically, again, it leaves it, it up to the audience to decide what's happening in the film in some ways, uh, but gives you so many things to play with in a frame that is seemingly even just blank. You know, it's just like a few pine trees and snow is dropping on them and suddenly you find yourself staring at it for four minutes and making up all these stories in your head about what's hmm. going on right I would uh, definitely and, have to uh, and he's excellent at doing that that's really really cool. yeah I, it's one of my favorite films to uh play at parties because you kind of catch people staring at the screen oh, every nice. now and then and then they move on and somebody else stares at, stares <laughs> at it i mean listen when i when i edit these shows together i usually do like to put something on so that i've got a visual behind my my laptop monitor that i can just kind of focus my eyes if if it's a longer stretch of the podcast that i don't have to cut too much out of so for all i know when when a time comes to cut this episode together i'll be watching that film you should and uh, there's uh if i remember correctly it was bill gay Avery, uh one of my favorite film writers who um tweeted some time ago about the fact that his cat was obsessed with 24 frames and he wouldn't um he wouldn't really normally watch films with 24 frames the cat was just obsessed with and ahmad kiarostami abbas's son uh, picked up on the tweet and he's like oh my dad would love this if he, <laughs> if he were alive and he knew about it because like what's more interesting than a cat being attracted to this uh to the screen because uh, of my dad's film um juliette binoche in this movie is just an absolute delight. The only knock I can throw at this movie now is that Benosha's character doesn't have a name, which I, you know, I, the, what I think what throws me is that Chamel's character has a name, but hers doesn't. It, it feels like you either got to name them both or name neither. But she's wonderful in this movie, whether she's just being so charmed by this Tuscan village that they happen to be spending the day in, or she's like, you know, on her last nerve yelling at her son on the cell phone, trying to find whatever the hell he's trying to find back at home. Or, you know, like the, the film's poster where she's trying on these earrings and she looks just so whimsical and, and, and girly trying to like basically, you know, gussy herself up midway through dinner. I would go so far as suggesting that she co-authors this film with Chiara Stemi. Oh, yeah. Um, which actually, a couple of people have done before in the past. I mean, for a director who's so, whose vision is so singular, I mean, you look at a movie like Close Up, and how do you say that Sabzian is not a co-author of that film, even though he's basically just a fraudster like Chiara Stemi's making a film about, right? Or, I mean, Ten famously is an example where Mania Akbari was kind of the co-author of the film, uh, although I won't open that can of worms. But here... I mean, first of all, the, the story of the film, uh, if they're telling the truth, is that the film came about because of a conversation that Juliette Binoche had with Kiara Stami in Tehran when she was visiting and she was his guest. And he told her the story about uh, 
you know, a woman and her son alone in Italy by the fountain and blah, blah, blah. And, and he said that happened to him. And at the end, he's like, do you believe it? And Binoche was like, yeah, of course. And he was like, well, I just made it up. It didn't happen. And, and they had a laugh about it and whatnot. But Juliette Binoche basically says, this would be great as a film. And lo and behold, you know, 15 years later, there's a film. He's such a playful storyteller that I don't know how much of that origin story is true. But if it is, you know, uh, even on a logistic basis, she's technically the, you know, the story came about with her. But I, I think this film, Mikiaris Nami is a filmmaker who doesn't really work with professional actors. Um, even Homayun Arshari, who's in Taste of Cherry, wasn't a professional actor. He is now, and he's in Hollywood films and whatnot, but things started with Taste of Cherry. I mean, even, like, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, because we'll talk about him in a second, but even Shamil isn't an actor. He was a singer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Shamil's an opera singer, right? Yeah. This is the first time he's really working with, with an actor who is really one of the best actors alive. And, and I don't think anyone could have... I mean, this is, uh, first of all, I can't see anybody else in this role at all now that Juliette Binoche is in the film. But I don't think this is a role that could have gone to a non-professional actor uh, in any way because it's so complex and so much of the film and its ambiguity hinges on the way she reacts to what's happening. I mean, essentially, if you have that demarcation point in the middle of the film where they go to that cafe and the cafe owner comes up and says, you guys look like a good couple and whatnot. And they flip the switch and start acting like a couple. Even before that scene, there are some clues to the fact that there might've been some previous connection between the two of them. For example, there's a part where they're walking on the street and Binoche is really exasperated about having to raise a child alone and, you know, saying the father is never there and, the, you know, it's not easy without a man, blah, blah, blah. And um, she plays that scene so casually that mm -hmm. it doesn't feel off kilter at all coming out of nowhere, basically, because you don't know that the film is going to take that direction. Right. Uh, but so she expresses so much with her eyes, just sitting even in that cafe scene, um, there's a sense in her eyes that, you know, there is history there, that she has feelings about this man that go far beyond, you know, a writer she admires. Um, and so every twist the film takes in this journey of, you know, are they a real couple or are they not? And the film keeps going back and forth and trying to, you know, reframe their relationship for you. Uh, she's completely on the same wavelength and, Really, she guides guides those twists, right? It's it's funny because you see how how much she puts it into her expression, and I actually would say that just as often she's very much putting it into her body. Like you you look at the um, one of the iconic shots of this film is the two of them sitting on these these church steps where she's just come out from you know she's like it's towards the evening of the day and she's like my bra was killing me i had to take it off and she's which first of all i love that that detail is in there because you know i'm i'm certain that every woman watching this film will be able to relate you know my lord knows my wife tells me often enough any guy who's griping about a mask Try growing up, you having to wear a bra. So I love that that's in there. But then she sits next to him and they, you know, they have it that that tenderness that I talked about earlier. They have it where she just kind of leans into him in a very uh, amorous way, but without being really um, uh, 
you know, d- uh, disrespectful to anybody who may be passing by, you know, like if you've ever walked around and seen a couple that was just so into each other, it's like, you know, guys get a room. It's not like that. This is a very, very tender type of, of embrace and leaning. And as she's doing that and her body is kind of tilted, you know, you watch her, her legs and her feet just kind of flex and move very, very naturally. Like she is, she's not acting in that moment. She's absolutely, totally in that moment or if you you know the times where you see her leading him around the town or leading him around these galleries she knows like when to actually pull on his hand and and move him through the space because he's not gonna you know want to do it otherwise it's it's such a it's a beautifully physical performance that that seems so natural that it almost you almost forget that they're playing right and it's and that's the thing is it's it's kind of it's like it's an acting performance within an acting performance that still seems just completely natural here's a performance that is not even a performance within a performance but maybe two performances within the performance because we don't know if the first part is real or the second or both or neither so they might always be performing for each other right um either as a couple or maybe they are a couple performing not being a couple and whatever it is but throughout all of that she manages to kind of carry the character and as a consequence carry us along emotionally because, um, you know, it's very easy for a film like this to sort of fall over the line into academic and just become a sort of a guessing game and a cinematic game of are they doing this? Are they not doing that? And a lot of art films, art film performances fall into that trap where, you know, the performer just becomes the vessel to make the quote unquote auteur's vision a reality. But the performance doesn't feel organic. Whereas here, I mean, this is one of the most authentic, heartfelt performances I've ever seen. Uh, And yet it is sort of a pawn in this academic game of, uh, let's see how far we can push this boundary between what's real and what's not real in the film. It must be very difficult, but also very satisfying. Um, And this is to go back to what I was saying about Kiara Stami's filmography, being filled with examples like this, even in his own filmmaking, uh, he's a filmmaker that could easily become too academic, and he never does. I mean, Through the Olive Trees is an incredible example of this because it has one scene, um, for those of your listeners who haven't seen it before, basically the director keeps telling an actor to go back upstairs, this actor's like coming down the stairs, needs to put his shoes on, deliver a few lines of dialogue and leave. And this is repeated countless times. I haven't seen the film recently, so I don't remember exactly how many times, but it's a young man, comes down the stairs, acts, no, go do it again. And he does it again. And again, it's more than 20 minutes long. So you're clearly, your attention is directed to the artifice of filmmaking. You're constantly reminded that this is fiction, it's not real and we're making a film and yet because it happens in the context of a love story um between that man and some woman who's also in the film but off screen they're partners or you know one of them loves the other one it's unrequited love and this is just like such an emotional scene to watch and for me that 
that scene is the height of Kiarostami's filmmaking. It's the height of his art- artistry because at once he can tell you, hey, look at this. Isn't it so fake? And yet you are just like helplessly drawn emotionally to this character to see, you know, how that scene is going to end up. And are, are these two lovers eventually going to end up with each other? Uh, it's marvelous. And so uh, to go off, you know, a finished long tangent coming back to certified copy. Um, this is, this is again, what this entire movie is all about, right? Um, taking, take these theoretical ideas and actually executing them in a way that feels very romantic and sensual and emotional, uh, and yet experimental at the same time. So on the flip side of this, we have, uh, William Shamil, who plays the author, he plays James Miller. His part in this whole caper is a little more showy, I think. You know, he is the one whose moods seem a little bit more erratic. Like, he he's the one who's yelling at dinner, you know, like, uh, basically, he orders this bottle of wine. And when it shows up, he, he doesn't think it's it's something that they should be paying for. It's something that's turned. Uh, and it turns into this crazy argument about whether he did or didn't fall asleep on their anniversary and how much he remembers. Uh, He's the man who is sitting in the atrium of this so-called church of like good fortune where there happens to be this relic and people from all over the nearby area kind of flock to this church to get married because they feel like it'll give their marriage an additional blessing if they happen to get married there. And so he's sitting in the the atrium of this church and the Julia Pinoche character comes back out and she says, there's a couple inside, they're getting married. And they found out that we got married here and they really want our picture taken with them. And he's like, I'd really rather not. And then out comes the groom who's like, you know, Signore, please. And he said, no, really, he won't. And then eventually out comes the bride right, <laughs> to try to convince him. And the whole time he's sitting there looking so bored looking so standoffish you know you can you before the bride even comes out you know it's gonna take the bride asking him to get him to move because he's just not having any of this and so it's a weird headspace to put an actor in like an actor let alone a guy who's not really an actor um and yet at no time in this movie do we ever actually dislike him you know like he spends I'd say about half this movie being kind of that person who, if you're traveling with them, they're, they're, they're a grump and they, they can kind of really cast a spell on the day. Um, and yet we still, when we get to the end of this, we would be like Benotion leaning into him and we would want to lead him up to that room that, you know, supposedly they were in 15 years ago when they got married. It's a really interesting and complicated performance out of a guy who doesn't normally get performances first of all i don't mean to be a racist but i think he spends the entire film being british that's what well, there's that yes. To say. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. here's 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 a southern european person trying to instill emotions into a british person uh for 90 minutes on screen yeah i mean you know one thing that really put um put his performance in perspective for me is this thing I read in, in a review of the film on, I think it was in reverse shot. Uh, Damon Smith wrote it anyway, uh, who said, uh, I mean, he's talking specifically about the fight 
or arguments seen in the in the uh, cafe over you know wine tasting uh, and he says that you know the heightened artificiality of this scene in in a different film uh, or maybe in a lesser film um could be attributed to clumsiness on the part of the director maybe who you know suddenly this simple film where everything is so subtle turns into this sort of clownish behavior suddenly people yelling at each other but in this film it could be attributed to the fact that these this is not a real couple and they're faking being a couple in that part of the film. And that sort of really put things in perspective for me about Shimo's performance overall, because um, he, while you know not being a professional actor, is also an incredible guide into this game that Kiarostami is playing with reality and, and fiction. Uh, you're constantly trying to figure out what's beneath that facade what it is that the woman is attracted to uh like you said along with her we are also kind of curiously attracted to uh, and what it is that takes him off when he has outbursts like that and could it be related to the fact that you know he's performing uh within the narrative of the film it could be um and and if that's the case that might be why it's not throwing us off or turning us off the character, right? It gets down to the the core question of this of this film about whether they are married, and you know, the beginning of it is just this strange, uh, you know, like you suggested, either a potentially unclear time jump, or you know, kind of cold um, reunion, or whether you know they they are we are to take them at their word and they are not married, but they decide to play this part. If they're not married and they just decide to take on these roles, it's a fascinating idea that two people would take on the roles of dissatisfaction. Like, I don't know, like, you know, I can't conceive of myself in a situation where I would pretend to be somebody else's spouse for, for an afternoon. Let's just put that right out there. But in this hypothetical, if I am going to do this, I am going to you know, approach it from a place of bliss and joy and tenderness. I am not going to get into, you know, arguments and dissatisfaction and talking about how you fell asleep on our 15th anniversary and you snore. So it's, it's that whole end of this story is a fascinating thing to put on film because it's 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 completely illogical that anybody would ever put them into their into the situation, and yet these two people do. Yeah, that if you're acting out being a couple, you choose to act out the least fun yeah. aspects of a marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's insane. Um, I mean, the the one of the things I do love about this film, um, you know, when you look at where it shows up in Kurosami's career, is the fluidity of language. You know, this is a film that combines a lot of English, admittedly, um, a bunch of French and a bunch of Italian. And this is one thing that I always feel so shitty about as a North American is that I'm kind of really ensconced into only speaking English. I can muddle my way through French, but it ain't pretty. Um, I love that this film you know, here, here's here's an Iranian filmmaker telling a European story, and he automatically sees a woman like Juliette Binoche and says, this is a woman that's going to be able to flip dialects 
as it suits the situation. And, you know, that kind of approach to this story that seems to flip not only dialects, but just logic. If you, you know, if you look at this whole thing of, are they putting on this role or not? At the time, I remember being very nervous about that before the film came out, because there is a very long history of Iranian filmmakers working out of Iran in languages that are native to them. Many of them, because they left after the 1979 revolution, so they, they had to work outside the country. Some of them, by choice, and usually the results completely show that that filmmaker is not is working out of their comfort zone. Basically, he he pulls it off, and I think some of that might have to do with uh, with the language of his cinema, just the way he approaches cinema. Um, even though he's very rooted in Iranian culture, he writes poetry. He's worked there all his life, uh, and his films are very distinctly Iranian. Uh, there's a quality about them that can be transposed, I think, to to other settings more easily than a lot of other filmmakers. Um, and yeah, I think Certified Copy and Like Someone in Love show that kind of flexibility in, uh, in his filmic language. Now that I think about it, it's an oddly universal story. I, you know, I don't know, there, there, I mean, there's corners of the world where I don't know if you could get away with quite as much physical affection, but there's not, there's not anything that's taboo in in terms of the physical affection you know like the, maybe there's a little bit more skin than you'd see in some corners of the world but even then it's really not this is a story that he could have set anywhere and i mean i and and that i think is part of what lends itself to the you know the the flipping back and forth between french english and and italian as as the situation presents itself yeah i mean he's a filmmaker who's always insisted on his films uh being authentic uh i i don't remember specifically which interview this was so uh, i can't direct you to a to a link or anything but i do remember him talking about how between the report which is the last feature film he made before the revolution uh and certified copy he never uh, you know in in iran as an islamic country with islamic guidelines in a cinema he could never show women indoors in his films because if he showed them indoors he would have to show them in hijab and that's just not realistic because people, women don't wear hijab at home so he just basically completely made this entire career and several films without showing women indoors at home oh. um and this is something that iranian audiences are used to you know if i watch an iranian film i see women hanging out at home with their scarf on and it's just sort of you take it for granted. You, It's just what it is, right? You know they can't show them with their hair out, so they don't show them. But you kind of assume that, you know, in that scene, they don't have the scarf on. Definitely. Now, the, 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 thing, the thing that's kind of cool about this movie is its title is a contradiction, of course, because, it, you know, the title certified copy, you know, a, a copy being certified is, is kind of is, is an amusing little contradiction, unless it's just a way of saying, we have definitely declared that this piece, whatever it is, is inauthentic. But I love the idea that, you know, that starts the wheels in motion that they say in this film that a certified copy still has value because it can lead 
the the observer towards the real thing whether that's the the genuine article being a person or a place or a work of art um you know it's it's just it's the gateway drug which i mean is kind of an interesting concept for a film like this um being the first one that that kiristami you know put out into the world that was outside of of his natural storytelling oeuvre we could probably have a whole other podcast about the concept of a certified copy and its value certified copy is a very specific thing in persian like if you get a certified copy of something it's when you um either lose a document or don't want to use the original of a document because you're afraid you might lose it or something so you go get your you know birth certificate certified so you take a copy of it and you certify it so the the name of the film in persian uh kofi barabaras is like basically what you would say if you were getting a document certified huh. um and so here's a language not spoken in the film that is also part of the film because the filmmaker speaks of fourth language too there right yeah it comes up a lot within the film right like he's talking about um you know like the the mona lisa that, that hangs in the louvre is not really the genuine article the genuine article is the woman that sat for da vinci hundreds of years ago that is the beauty what is hanging in the louvre is actually just a copy it's just as you know valuable or worthless as something you can get in a gift shop which i mean you can up, open up a whole rabbit hole on that whole theory because life is just a like a litany of certified copies of everything from style to food to what you think your life choices should be and here's this storyteller here's this character saying unless it's the unless it's the shit unless it's the real thing you're just ripping off someone else so you know how authentic are you really being it's kind of uh, incredible that it's taken us an hour and some minutes to get to really the thesis of the film right mm -hmm. and again even in, in even in this regard you could walk away from the film taking away a completely different outcome than somebody else uh about you know a copy's worth compared to the original um and also i mean are we just talking about art or are we talking about a copy of a relationship you know oh no we're uh, absolutely uh, talking the, about a copy of a relationship because i mean that's that's the thing in this film is like you, you may ask yourself why would two people do this you know why would two people just pretend to be married for whatever you know for an afternoon but you know meanwhile, yeah but even maybe those quarrels made them feel really good about themselves yeah, yeah uh, you know and if, it was worth it yeah if you know anybody who's ever traveled alone will know the value in talking to a complete stranger for even just 20 minutes you know so the idea of sinking yourself into you know a copy of something for an afternoon there there's a weird immediate and very specific value in that we steer this conversation about the films on the winchester chronicles of the last 10 years um beyond the fact that they're good because we both come into these conversations agreeing that these films are great that's what well, that's the whole point of the series but we also come into them talking about how they embody the 10 years gone by so for you what is it about this film that embodies the decade past i had time to think about it and i still couldn't really come up with anything but then i went through um then i went through the list of my favorites from the past 10 years barring the very obvious examples like the master for example which says a lot about where our society is now i didn't really um 
I don't know if my connection to films has really been related to what goes on around me. And if anything, it's probably been the opposite um, in that I've just totally gone the escapist route of Mm. not, you know, connecting anything I watch with what goes on in my life. And in that sense, Certified Copy is, um, is a good film to talk about because it takes me out of, you know, in some playful way, is what, what I'm experiencing when I'm watching the movie even real, or is it just a distraction from everything that's going on in I, real life? That is that is one thing I was thinking about as I was watching the movie yesterday, is the way that the very best films can take me out of myself and just, you know, drop me into another reality for two hours or so. And that's really what this film wants you to do is see these two people drop themselves into a completely other reality for an afternoon. Um, I, I was thinking about that. I think when, when I ask myself that question uh, about how this film can embody the decade, I come, I come back to the idea of a certified copy of a relationship and a certified copy of a person in relation to to another and i don't know if this was just the decade where we hung a name on it uh or if it was when it became more prevalent but i think about the last 10 years the idea of an emotional affair becoming more of a commonplace idea between uh, you know, two people uh, who may or may not be attached, but their feelings for one another go beyond the pl- go beyond the platonic, but are not um, co- physically consummated. And this movie can kind of show how that can serve a need, you know, and, and, and like to to look at how especially how Benoche's character, she glow, she's glowing a little bit more at the end of the movie than she is at the beginning, you know, even despite the fact that this afternoon hasn't exactly been bread and roses. Like there's been arguments, her son's been calling, Miller's been standoffish, but she still is just so happy at the, at the end of the day to be in that hotel room, you know, stretched out on that bed. You can see how a person can get caught up in an emotional affair. That's the theme of this film that I really see mirrored in a lot of what you read about people and see people having these things happen to them in their lives. Well, we end on a happier note. Um, We talk about a souvenir of a film, um, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this film and keep, uh, you would. Uh, Emil Sotani, what would be your souvenir from uh, Certified Copy? Julia Binoche's face in that (laughs) scene where she's putting her earrings on. Just such a It's so sweet, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Uh, my souvenir is, um, well, kind of selfish. My souvenir is I want to go to that village in Tuscany where they spend the afternoon. Um, I was uh, actually supposed to be going to, not Tuscany, but I was supposed to be going to Italy back in the spring. And when things started going sideways, that was one of the first things that I did was scrap my plans. So I very much have Italy on the brain. Um, when he, when um, the author tells the story about, um, you know, getting the idea for his book by listening to a mother tell uh, her son this story in a piazza in Florence. Um, a few years ago, I sat 
in that piazza. And, and I, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to in my life. So I really had Italy on the brain watching this movie again and really wanted to go back, especially to the small Tuscan village where most of it is shot. That is certified copy. Uh, it, let me know what you think of this movie if you've seen it. If you haven't seen it, I really obviously hope that you do take this conversation as a, as a wholehearted recommendation to check it out. Um, Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter where I'm matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Abbas Kurosami's certified copy? We are going to take a quick break and come back on the other side. Talk about some more movies after this. Come on back. We're back. He's Amir Sultani. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's Winchester Chronicles Dispatch number 10. We're into double digits already. And we've been talking about uh, Abbas Kiristami's certified copy. And this is the part of the podcast where we suggest uh, further reading. We we go further down the spiral and say that, you know, if you enjoyed the film or these are some other places you could land uh, to spend your time. Um, Amir, get us started. Where's uh, where's a, a work that somebody could go to um, that would complement uh, certified copy nicely? I think the very first place I would go is Kiara Sami's other films because certified copy brings a lot of different themes and traits in his filmmaking uh, all in one place. When you think about films set in cars, long takes of people in cars, long takes of people having conversations, playing with ideas of what's reality and what's fiction. Um, When you think about narrative digressions, I mean, we talked earlier about how he goes on these narrative digressions and you see a scene like the opening scene of this film where you just follow a person that you didn't think you were going to follow at a critical part of the lecture um, and the trajectory of the narrative changes, this really brings to mind the very famous scene from Close Up where, you know, you leave this very important critical conversation to follow a character out onto the screen who to the street who just kicks a can of spray paint and you watch the can of spray paint roll down the street for a very long time. Um, and, I mean, these sort of kind of spiritual ancestors to certified copy or artistic ancestors can be found in his own filmmaking everywhere. I must now somewhat shamefully cop to the fact that I am actually woefully ill-versed where it comes to Kirostami. I just did a quick check and I have seen a whopping three of his 49 works three yeah Uh, so i i have work to do obviously and you have given me some good direction there oddly enough one of those three is like someone in love which was going to be my uh suggestion for somebody to to check out on the other side um and and you're right it's it's another interesting film it's another film that plays around with role-playing right like in 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 this case it's it's uh it's it's all set in japan right um yes and it's and it kind of um it's it it features a high-end prostitute as the as the central character and at one point she interacts with this elderly professor and their relationship takes on these different um facets as as 
as their time goes on, like originally it's just going to be kind of like one night, but then circumstances being as they are, it kind of trickles over into the next morning and the next evening. And, you know, we go both into kind of what he's thinking and what he's getting out of it and what she may be thinking and what she may be getting out of it besides the financial. It's another story, like you said, that, that has, um, disembodied thoughts. Like we, we spend a lot of time in that film listening to voicemails, um, and, and watching their effect on the lead character. And it's another story that pulls that same trick that I enjoyed so much in, in, um, certified copy where the cityscape washes over the windshield while the character is in the car. Like it's, it, you know, like uh, if I'm getting this correct, that's kind of one of his signature moves, right? Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, you're going to have a lot of fun if you like that effect when you go back into his filmography. But, um, I, I agree with you, uh, on, on like someone in love. And I think watching, I, I rewatched them back to back this week for, for the podcast. And it's interesting to see certified copy and then open like someone in love, which again, opens with off-screen sound on a static camera similar to certified copy with a woman off-screen saying i'm not lying to you i am where i said i am yeah and you're like oh there we go again yeah yeah here we go yeah we're right we're right back there if you were going to suggest somebody to move on to something that's not kirosami what uh, what else you got in mind okay so the first film i would recommend uh i think a lot of people have made the connection is roberto rossellini's journey to italy uh, which Son of a I bitch, it was going to be mine. This year because, <laughs> oh, really? And I know you've seen it recently because you have this running Twitter thread of films you're watching this year, and that's the first one of the year. And yeah. every time I go on Twitter, it reminds me that you watched it on January 1st. There are so many connections. I mean, where do you even begin, right? Essentially, it's about a wealthy, well-off, middle-aged couple who go on a journey to Italy and uh, driving around a lot of the time. And uh, sort of working out the things in their relationship that aren't working out. And you're left by the end thinking, you know, are they actually overcoming these issues or is it just temporary? And what is their relationship going to be after the camera's turned off and you sort of don't follow the story anymore? And even on stylistic elements, there's there's so many scenes that are similar to journey in Italy. There's, there's scenes with driving, there's scenes with trees. There's the ending scene in journey to Italy is a religious procession. And here is a shot of a church. Um, and it kind of, I think is interesting to see a film so occupied with the idea of copies and whether they're worth it or not as much as the original artwork. And then seeing a film that is so clearly indebted to uh, a very tremendous piece of art, which in my opinion even improves upon it. It's kind of crazy because I remember early on when when I was first, uh, you know, when I when I was first just dating my my now wife, um, I was at a I was at a family dinner and we we got to talking about Italian films, and my now brother in law talked about how the ending of most Italian films is a huge bummer. It, it's you know it's it's something strangely inherent about Italian films that the ending is, is some sort of a drag. And I mean, even this film where the ending is a little bit more hopeful than how, you know, than the, the two hours you've just gone through, it's still at the very, at the very best, mildly ambiguous. Um, it's also a film, like when I put these two movies kind of together, they're, they're also films that make me 
kind of scratch my head and smirk at the idea of traveling with somebody you care about because you always hope that it's going to be wonderful and it's going to be relaxing and it's going to be adventurous. And you really don't want to admit to yourself that there's a very high possibility that you're going to spend days somewhere very far from home, not liking the person next to you to dedicate that to film is so strange to me. It's, it's, it's like the opposite of fairy tales, you know, that, that, that filmmakers like, you know, Kiarostami and Rossellini would want to take people disagreeing in romantic locations and, and put that out into the world. Yeah. And very grumpy British men, very grumpy British men. Yes. Yeah. Th- that's, that's one thing these two films have in common for sure. Another film that I thought about with this, um, and it's a film that I think is somewhat maligned um, because a lot of people didn't really didn't quite latch onto what the film was necessarily trying to do and or the film didn't quite do it the way it should have done have you seen a film from about five years back uh directed by angelina jolie called by the sea i have not and i really wish that i had seen it because all the people who i uh whose opinions i care about have told me that it shouldn't have been maligned and it's actually a very worthy film it is a very worthy film. Like you, you know, the, the, what what held this film back, I think, is that you had two, you know, capital A list movie stars in a film that that really, you know, if if this film starred the the cast of Certified Copy, everybody would have been talking about it as how incredible it is because it starred two celebrities. People didn't know what the hell they were getting into, and they weren't ready for the melodrama that it is. It really goes very very well with um voyage to italy it's got those rossellini uh flourishes to it it is handsome as hell uh that same trip that i talked about before that i i managed to scuttle um it, along with going to italy i was also going to be going to malta and that's where this film is shot so anytime i think about this film i get grumpy again but it's it's a movie where again you're watching a married couple and you're watching them go through their shit again. We're talking about this time we're talking about 14 years. So it's, it's, it's again, kind of on the same sort of timeline as a certified copy and um, a, another movie where it's a very small cast. Like there's only really kind of six speaking parts and it's, it's just gorgeous to look at. Like, you know, you could probably watch this on mute and, and, to glean an awful lot from the body language from scene to scene. But you're right. A lot of people just hate this movie. And I really think it's the fact that it's Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, you know, dragging us through their therapy sessions. Uh, you said you had one more film to, to go along with certified copy. Um, I'm surprised people haven't made the connection between these two films. Maybe I'm off base here, but uh, one other film I really thought about when I was watching this is Alan Renee's uh, Last Year at Marion Bad. Um, I don't know if you've seen that one. You are the second person to bring that up on this show, and I still haven't seen oh, it. Really? I think I'm pretty sure it's on Criterion Channel too, isn't it? Uh, I believe so. Yeah, I have no Probably excuse. Is. Uh, I have I don't absolutely no head, excuse. But- First of all, it's an incredible film, but uh, on, on its reputation alone, I expected this very sort of inscrutable film that I wouldn't be able to figure out. Uh, it's sort of exactly the opposite of what Certified Copy is in that it's 
very complex on the surface, but actually once you kind of get the rhythm of the film and you know that uh, you kind of get the hang of, okay, everything here is kind of a hallucination and very dreamlike, but it's within a pattern. And once you figure out that pattern, that's your guideline to understanding the characters. It's not so much an enigmatic film as it is a film about people whose identities for themselves is very enigmatic. And so they're trying to figure out their identities and histories and whatnot. Uh, it's the opposite of certified copy in that certified copy on the surface is very simple and it's just a bunch of conversations, but it's very complex uh, beneath that surface. Uh, but regardless, that is also about a, a maybe couple, a maybe menage a trois in some way who are like trying to figure out what their relationship is together. Maybe one of them met the other one. Maybe they didn't. And he's hallucinating it. Maybe he even raped her at some point. There's a, a suggestion of that. Maybe he didn't. Uh, maybe there's murder involved. Maybe there isn't. Uh, none of that is exactly clear, but it's also a film that isn't, you know, it, its pleasures aren't in figuring out what, the solution is to those mysteries um in the same way that certified copy uh once you come away from the film your first instinct is is not hey let me try to like are they a couple or are they not you don't really care i mean that the the complexity and beauty of the film lies elsewhere and i would say it's the same with last year at marion but i would highly recommend that one well the bad news is it is not on criterion channel the good news is it is on canopy which uh is free with anybody's uh library uh membership awesome. so so there we go so uh, thank you for that uh you this is I'm, I'm certain this is the second time at least this year that it's come up so i really need to to get on that uh and and, and finally scratch that off my to watch list well my final uh um, connection is, uh, you know, it's it's an easy one, but it's one that I love bringing up on this show for all the usual reasons. Um, when I think about two people wandering around a European town, uh, you know, in in a state of uncertain relationship, I always think about Before Sunrise, the beginning of the Bef Richard Linklater's Before trilogy with uh, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. I came to this film uh, quite late. I did not see this film until 2004 when Before Sunset uh, was released. And I have said before, I am really glad that I did not come to it until late because if I had seen this movie as an impressionable teenage boy, I would have been <laughs> brutal at approaching women in, in, in any place that I went to that was not home in the hopes of recreating this little interaction. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of become, uh, very quickly become kind of a modern classic, um, before sunrise, especially in the whole trilogy, really. Um, which is kind of crazy to see because if you told me, back when this was first released in 95, that this is this would be a film that we'd still be talking about 25 years later, I would have been a little bit surprised. It's, again, really simple. It's, again, really talky. Um, you have a teeny bit of the role play going on, you know, like in, mostly in the meet cute and in, in the talk of, like, time travel into the future of, you know, how they interact with one another and maybe they could be that mistake. Um, and... It's, you know, it, it, it would be interesting to watch the two back to back because on the one hand, you have 
two early 20-somethings that are spending this, this time together with just the absolute exuberance of youth and the hormones going crazy and the, you know, who cares what tomorrow may bring. And whereas in Certified Copy, you have two, uh, you know, I'd say probably early 40s, mid 40s, maybe even later in the ter- in the in the case of, of the grumpy British gentlemen, um, you know, relating to one another in a very, very different way. Like n- neither of these two are necessarily better than the other because there's, there's just in such different spaces, but it's, it, it, they could almost be, you know, a, a, a match set in the way that before midnight eventually becomes for these two people. If, if before midnight didn't exist. Yeah. I, I love that trilogy. Um, although I would say that my experience of them was probably not optimal because I hadn't seen any of the films until 2013 when Before Midnight came out and I just one day decided I'm watching them. And so I when when Before Midnight was in the theaters, one morning I watched the first one and then the second one and then I went to the theater and watched them all in one day. And of all trilogies, I feel like that that one's the one that you do the most disservice to by watching it all back to back because it has that natural progression of the number of years that come between uh, between each episode. I know a lot of people make distinctions in terms of quality between them. Um, to me, that distinction is a little bit blurred again because of the way I watched it. Because I, to me, it was just like, oh, this self-contained story that I'm all seeing in one day. So the details of like which bit I liked in which episode and which bit I didn't like in which episode kind of escaped me at the moment. That is the 10th dispatch of the Winchester Chronicles. And I'm so thankful that Amir Sultani was able to come by. Come on back on Monday, August 10th for our 11th dispatch. We'll be staying in the year 2010 and be discussing Never Let Me Go. Um, Amir, if people want to follow you on Twitter for any reason uh, to talk about stuff, where can they find you these days? Don't yeah, don't if you don't like any of the films that I like, don't send me abuse. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. follow me on Twitter. Don't <laughs> um, don't, don't add him. My my Twitter and Letterbox and Instagram is everything is the same handle. It's Amiresk, my first name A M I R and E S Q U E. Very nice. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also find them on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Ditcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple, uh, everywhere that you find uh, podcasts. My show is there. You get handy ways to subscribe and get alerts when new episodes drop. Uh, if uh, there's a platform of choice you uh, use and my show is not there, let me know and I will put it there. If you want to drop by and do an episode or um, about one of the decade's best films, or you have feedback on certified copy, Drop a dime in the comment section of the site. You can email me, ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter, where I am matinee underscore CA, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts before we go, buddy? I'm all good. It was a pleasure to be here, actually, after so long, and um, I very much look forward to doing it again. The pleasure was mine, and I really got to get better at getting people back here in shorter order i gotta i gotta stop this this trend of mine of like six seven years going by before i get people back on to sit down for amir i'm ryan wash your hands and call your person <laughs>